everyone. Welcome back to the bi-monthly Wheel Every Weekend podcast. The best off-road podcast that comes out twice a year. <laughs> Accurate. By far, I think. Uh, I'm not even going to say that we're going to try and do more of these because clearly we just won't. You know, we're still doing good, though, even though we didn't do what we said we were going to do, but we're doing more. I don't even remember what we say we're going to do. That's I think a- you said once a week. Yeah, I did. And uh, that was two months ago. So there you go. Shooting for the stars. If people believe us, though, it's really their fault. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> so. Uh, you gaslighting them. Uh, yeah, ghost lamping, ghost we call lamping. it. Yeah, because we kept getting gaslighting mixed up, and then it was gas lamping, and then it was ghost lighting, and then now it's become ghost lamping. I don't even know what it really is anymore. No, <laughs> we Google the definition every once in a while, and we're like, huh. Anyways, uh, we're going to talk about shocks in this episode, and I asked a question to Instagram, and I actually got a ton of really good shock questions, which yeah. I was excited about, uh, which is cool. I think uh, it should be actually a decent episode. And hopefully the things I say are mostly correct. Uh, but no promises. So how's the shop been going, though, before we get into it? Good? Bad? How's the what been going? Shop. Oh, good. I yeah. think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, you have an update on, on your big build you're working on? I hate this thing. Yeah. <laughs> the problem with building a Nissan Frontier is that every single part has to be custom. So, yeah. like, I've designed so many brackets in CAD, and mm-hmm. it's just a nightmare. And you can't just, like, buy kits for stuff and put it on. And then also, I'm kind of anal, so I'm like, oh, I can get an extra inch and a half of up travel for 10 hours more work, and then I do it. You know what I mean? Yep. I just can't half-ass stuff. I have to fully ass it. It looks really good, though. I mean, yeah. he's going to be really happy with the end result. Yeah. And the problem is like, I know the customer too well. So like, yeah. I just, I know that he won't do any maintenance. He's not going <laughs> to, no offense, Curtis, if you're listening, he's not going to check the bolts. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to take it out, wheel it as hard as possible. Yes. And then put it away until he wheels it as hard as possible again. And that's going to be the life of this truck. So I'm like, well, I have to reinforce this. Yeah. I have to build this different, blah, blah, yep. blah. All his links are chromoly. Everything's TIG welded. You know. At least he will wheel it. Yeah, I know. And it's not like he'll just immediately sell it, which is right. nice. Because I've built, spent a bunch of time on stuff, and then people will turn around and sell it. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> my heart. It's okay, yeah. but it's not. <laughs> uh, There's so. an upside and a downside to knowing your customer. Yeah, it's true. Um, Curtis is a good dude though. And I'm glad he, you know, thought of me when it came to this build, but also yeah. I don't know who else would have agreed to do this. But yeah. I'm I just going to say that. I mean, I can't think of a single <laughs> shop that would have taken this on. And, uh, since I'm so underwater on it though, I've been using it as a chance to learn more CAD and I've pretty much taught myself how to TIG weld on his truck. Yes, you did. Which there's a lot of value in, I think. Yeah, totally. So there's some silver linings, but also I would have liked to have been done with it. Last month, because I have 40-ish products to make. I know. A bunch of shock stuff to do. Just yep. so much. Normal like, work stuff. Yeah. All the website stuff. And our truck. on everything. Yeah. And I need to build our personal truck. Although our Tundra's been a pretty good stopgap. We've taken it out to Akatia Wells, what, like yeah. 
six or seven times in yeah. the past two months. Yeah, since we got back from mm. from Colorado. Yeah. And, you know, we can do a lot of the trips that we like to do in the tundra. Yeah, man. A lot of the stuff we like to do is just like scenic, like pretty stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I really enjoy that. Yeah. Like uh, probably in the spring, maybe we'll try and go back to Colorado, depending on how work is, because I just I want to see all the like wildflowers and stuff in the spring. Yeah. So for me, it's like 50% is like trolling. because i think it's funny to make like the ifs long travel guys mad so i build a bunch of link trucks that make them mad and then it's like 50 percent yeah i like to see views huh and then another 50 percent is my add and then another 50 percent probably is like how good i am at math yes yeah that's what i'm thinking (laughs) <laughs> I, I think you nailed it. I yeah. think you know yourself pretty well. Yeah, it's, I have the curse of intros, introspection, introspe- self, whatever it is. <laughs> this is a fucking word for it. All right, let's get it right into the question. Uh, all right. <laughs> what do you okay. got for me, babe? I, uh, I haven't read these questions yet, too. So hopefully I okay. don't screw them up. But All I'll right. tell you guys if I don't know what I'm talking about before that's, I say that's it. That's true. That's true. Um, okay, I'll go ahead and start reading them. There's a lot, so. Yeah, we don't have to read all of them. Okay. There are too many. Okay, some of them are, are repeats, so we'll try to address yeah. everything. Yeah. Uh, all right, the first one. Oh, someone wants to know, can you post some pictures and videos when you revalve the Fox 3.0 shocks on the Tacoma? The yeah. Tacoma? I think those are going to be cool. The issue with the Fox internal bypasses, they use a second cylinder inside. So if you have like a two and a half inch coilover, you might only have like a two inch main piston, um, which kind of sucks. But then I'm just getting around that by running three inch coilovers. So it'll still have like a two and a half inch main piston. But I think they're going to be pretty much impossible for me to valve because I've never done them before. And the way they work is it's like a cylinder inside with a bunch of holes drilled in it that have reeds. And reeds are like what make a two stroke work. It's like a one way valve pretty much. Mm that has like spring force that holds it shut. So it's like literally you're just like screwing on springy steel that covers a hole. And then as the oil tries to push it out at a certain point, the spring steel will kind of like pop away from the hole and the oil can bleed through it freely. And that's how it creates the zones. Interesting. Yeah. And then the issue with the three inch coilovers is that you jump up actually one in uh spring size. So I forget, but it's like, for a two and a half inch coilover, you can use three inch ID springs, but for a three inch coilover, you have to use like three and a quarter or four inch ID springs, which are way bigger and harder to package in a front end, but it's still easier to package one shock than it is two. Mm-hmm. And the only, like I've tried to figure out how to run two shocks, but even with 14s at full droop and full bump, you can't turn because you hit either one shock or the right. other, depending on where you put them. So I don't know. I haven't seen anyone's trucks that have managed to actually clear theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think some people just limit their steering for it, which, you know, if you get the extra performance of the bypass, might be worth limiting your steering for it. But like Curtis's truck, I'm getting over 40 degrees of steering out I of it. I know. It's, it's impressive. Yeah. yeah. So I have to use a 10 inch ram and then uh, all the dual shear, like high steer kits for that axle push the tie rod way out, which mm-hmm. kind of ruins your Ackerman angle. But it makes it so it clears the diff cover, which is nice. Ah, 
Okay. And I have a, I'm putting IBPs on his truck too. So that's the first one I'm going to Yeah, tune. that's what I thought. Okay. The Fox IBPs are cool, but they try and charge you $300 for the wrenches to take them apart, which I am oh obviously not going to spend. <laughs> so I'll be making some wrenches. So if and you guys need IBP wrenches, <laughs> let me know. I think there's a question later on, on, on what tools you need to start doing this stuff. So we'll get, we'll get there. Okay, cool. Okay. Um, Thoughts on bypasses on the front of a leaf-sprung Toyota Crawler? I think it's completely unnecessary. Probably a waste of money. I think you'd be... It depends, though. Like, if you get some bypasses for dirt cheap, like, put them on. Why not? But the issue with bypasses is it's hard to control, like, the super low-speed compression um, because of the way a bypass works. Although you can kind of dick with the springs that are in it and put, like, softer or heavier rate springs, which will change when the bypass tubes open, like how much force it takes to open. So if you have heavy enough springs in the bypass tubes, you can kind of control like body roll and stuff pretty good. Um, It just depends how you set it up. So it's totally possible, but I think it would take a bunch of tuning. And my guess is if you have just like a leaf spring Toyota crawler, you're not going to be like, taking the bypasses apart and like changing the springs and revalving it. You're mm-hmm. probably just like, yeah, this is sick. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it is cool though. Like if I had some bypasses, I pulled off a truck that were like bent and didn't work right. I would totally put them on a leaf spring truck just for fun. I mean, I think there's something to be said for the fun factor, right? Like just doing stuff because it's fun. Right. Yeah. But I don't know. I think you're probably better off with a smooth body dollar to performance wise in mm-hmm. pretty much every scenario unless you're racing but then even like i'm pretty sure randy slawson who no not randy he's bomber fab who's the guy rusty nail gym or something rusty metal something anyways he i'm pretty sure he has smooth bodies on everything and uh he won emc a couple times but i'm not sure that um i'd have to check the emc rules because they might not allow bypasses that might be why Ooh, yeah but is with a leaf spring truck, dude, it's like, how much performance are you going to get out of it, really? Right. Probably not much. So, whatever. Um, The next question is in our messages. Yeah, yeah I got it. You want to read it? Mm-hmm. Um, all right. He said, I'm currently not knowing what direction to go. I need, sho- I need shocks. I want something to tune with. The current thing I'm looking at is just some Fox 2.0 Resi or the Fox 2.0 LSC. Is the LSC worth it for a crawler setup? Something like that will drive on the road to the trail. It's a Toyota pickup on Leafs for now in the rear. We'll probably live the life of Chevy 63s. Sorry, people should use uh, punctuation. <laughs> okay. Mm. Okay. Did you, you get done? that? <laughs> done. That's it. Okay. That's one long sentence. <laughs> All right. You done with your fit? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, I think the dual adjusters are great and also super unnecessary and also a great addition and also something people ruin their trucks with all at once. Uh, the low speed adjusters on the 2.0s, I don't actually know how much low speed compression valving they can add, but on like a crawler build, I think it's great because oftentimes. You're either not running a sway bar, which you should always run a sway bar on trucks, um, or 
there's just no room for a sway bar. Like in the front of a three link truck, you just can't run one. There's yeah. no room. Like I've I made it work on ours, and Matt Pratt made it work on his, and it's just it's such a fucking thing. Like I, his setup is really crazy. Yeah. And I remember we spent weeks trying to figure out how that sway bar is going to fit in the front end. Yep. And it rubs a little bit mm-hmm. at full bump and. Mm-hmm. Uh, full lock yeah it's not perfect so whatever but the low speed adjuster is great because let's say you're gonna drive super windy road you can just crank in the low speed compression damping for that which will kind of clean it up like around turns and stuff mm-hmm. and then when you get to the desert you can air down and pull some of the compression valving out if you want however there are lots of people who don't know the difference between too much compression and too little compression And so part of the issue is that you're taking shocks that are tuned by like suspension engineers, and then you're allowing the end user who maybe doesn't know anything about them to adjust them. And I think that can get people into trouble, but it is nice to have some of your own input on your ride quality. Cause at the end of the day, suspension is totally subjective. Like I always say, so if you turn some knobs and you think it feels better, then it feels better. End of story. Mm-hmm. But I think also people will like put more compression in when maybe what they need is to pull some out or they get confused and don't make uh, the best adjustments on them. So, yeah, like I don't think your typical overlander, like as a customer, would understand how to make effective changes for damping. Right. Uh, but I think the low speed adjusters on a crawler that you're trying to daily would be great because you can make the springs maybe a little softer and you can kind of use them as a fake sway bar, which is really not the right answer, but it does work. So there you go. Okay. All right. Next question. Air versus ORI versus coilover. Ideal shaft showing for crawl versus trail versus go fast. Bump stops two versus four. Whoa, there's a lot there. Yeah. So an air shock does the job of coils and a shock all in once. They usually have a pretty big shaft and they're using air pressure to actually hold the vehicle up. And so the detriment to that is that you're not isolating functions. You're taking the damping Mm -hmm. and the force that holds it up and you're combining it into one thing. And the way shocks work is they turn kinetic energy into heat via friction and so air shocks have less of a propensity to do that. And there's mm-hmm. also an upper limit on weight that they can deal with. Like a two inch air mm-hmm. shock might only be able to hold up 3000 ish pounds or so. Um, and they get hot very quickly and they're not good for going fast. ORIs are like more complicated air shocks and they have like a bunch of tubes in them and they have chambers and they have like a weird little bump zone thing. And uh, there's an ORI owners Facebook group and it, they they just seem like such a nightmare. They're like mm-hmm. every single post is like mine are leaking, mine leak in between the top and bottom chamber, blah, blah, blah. And then the way they sell them is uh, you can just tune them just by adjusting pressures. Well, it turns out you actually need to change the amount of oil that's in them and stuff. So you end up still having to like pull everything apart and adjust it anyways. And then you end up with less performance than a traditional coilover. Mm-hmm. There's one person who raced hammers with RRIs last year, I think. But I think it's very telling that there's only one person. And it was like, look, they can do this instead of just like 
of course they can do this. <laughs> and people have so many issues. And like by the time you take enough pressure out of the bottom chamber so that you get like a quick shaft speed over small stuff, it kind of like ruins the rest of it because of how the oil is flowing through the small ports. And there's one guy who is like some engineer with way too much time on his hands that's completely redone his and like changed everything. And his are getting close to what I would call like working great, but he's like completely rebuilt them seven times and like machine custom parts for mm. them and all this stuff. They just, they seem like such a nightmare. To yeah. Me. Um, I've ridden in two trucks with them and I was not impressed, but again, I'm sure people also don't know how to tune them. So it'd be interesting yeah. to ride in a truck with them tuned. And also they reach shock fade pretty quickly because of the same issue with traditional air shock. So like I had, one customer who like literally driving up and down the cone pass and stuff when it was hot out, he felt like he was getting shock fade and getting to the hmm. point where it wasn't damping anymore and like crazy body roll and stuff around turns and they can be a little unstable too. And then a coilover is just a shock with a coil on the outside, um, which is just like your traditional thing, which is mainly what I deal with. So maybe I'm biased towards it, but yeah, air just has a ton of issues. It like jounces mm -hmm. super hard. And then also like, if our shocks leak on our coilover, we can just drive home. But if your shocks leak on an air shock, then you're just like stuck at full bump. Mm -hmm. And because it does all the jobs, it's kind of like ruined. Or if you run out of air pressure in it, it like bleeds off a bit. I don't know. I don't like them, but some people love them. So there you go. Suspension <laughs> subjective. If you think it's good, it is. Uh, ideal shaft showing for crawl versus trail versus go fast. Yeah, man, people are all over the place, but it's up to you. Some people say, like, you want 50-50 bump droop for going fast, 60-40 for this. I think you should just adjust it until you're happy with it. For low-speed crawling, you can get away with a little less up-travel um, for a lower center of gravity. But also sometimes more up-travel lets you have a higher spring rate on that corner, mm -hmm. which can also be beneficial. So it's like, how do I – I can't really say anything about it. But if you want to like go fast through whoops and stuff, you need like six inches of up travel, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's like a good rule, like five or six inches, which is also around where you want to be for bypasses, at least like five to six inches of up travel. So you can go through all the zones and then bump stop two versus four. I'm assuming that's inches. Um, yeah, a lot of people just have too long of bump stops. Like people think that longer bump stops are an upgrade because the number is higher. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, this is literally what I think because I'll have people with like four inch bump stops and they're sitting like an inch off the bump pad. Oh. And they're like, Oh, you know, my suspension doesn't ride that good. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, I'm gonna have to like machine down a spacer to make that a two inch bump because your shocks aren't doing anything. Mm -hmm. And it's also ironic because it's usually people who have like really nice shocks too. Hmm. I'm like, you, why do you have nice shocks if you're not going to use them? <laughs> but yeah, as people also, some people think that the two and a half inch bump stops will be an upgrade for them. And then they come in here and I have to pull like almost all the pressure out of them to make them act more like two inch bumps. Mm -hmm. So people just see a higher number and they think it's better. Right. But yeah. You want like a good amount of up travel where you're not hitting your bump stops. Like on solid axle fronts, I only use two inch ones. Mm-hmm. Um, on our trailing arm rear setup though, I did use a four inch, but that's because we had 27 inches of travel. Right. So, and also because when we were fully loaded, we we're like pretty much riding on them, which is the opposite of what I'm <laughs> saying to do. So <laughs> whatever. Yeah. 
So hopefully that does not clear it up. (laughs) (laughs) So far, all the answers are, it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah, which is, it's (laughs) like, it's such a like pansy cop out, but it's also true. So like, I don't know what to do because if someone is like, well, I like having a four inch bump stop, then I'm like, okay, then it's better. Then it works for you. It's great. It's up to you, but I'm telling you it's not. (laughs) (laughs) But if you say it is, then it is. So there you go. All right, next question. Running a stiff spring with a tender versus a soft spring with more damping. Yeah, man. I don't like tender springs, um, but I also don't build things that really need them. So, like, when you're at full droop, if your tire is just sitting there and nothing is pushing the tire down, it looks cool in Instagram photos, but it's not helping the performance of the vehicle. That's why I'm really suspicious of those like longer rear shock kits for Tacomas where people are trying to fit like 14 inch shocks. I'm like, Mm -hmm. there's just like the aftermarket loose springs just don't cycle that cleanly. Like there needs to be down pressure at full droop in order for it to go correctly over like whoops. And also so that you're actually using your articulation. Like there's no need to have a tire. It's like your tires on the ground, but that's where it ends. It's not helping you more than if it was like two inches in the air Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there's not any traction on it because there's nothing pushing down on it. So, yeah, the stiff spring thing, if you have a super lightweight buggy or if you have like, yeah, I guess, I mean, it's even that it's hard to say. But if you have a lightweight buggy. You might just reach the point where they don't make springs that are soft enough. And the problem with having super soft springs is they bow really bad. So like as they're going up and down, they're going to want to like shift side to side and kind of make that banana shape. And it's just a property of the metal that you can't really get around. So Mm -hmm. mounting um, your coilovers at a motion ratio with that would be a lot better, I would think. Or if you have a ton of droop, like let's say... At ride height, you have 12 inches of droop. Like you have a 16-inch coilover and you're set up with 4 inches of up travel and 12 inches of droop. Well, you want to have 12 inches of droop and maybe 2 inches of preload so that you have that down pressure on the tire when it's at full droop. So you take that 12 inches of droop, add in the 2 inches of preload for 14 inches. So you need to have a linear spring rate that is compressed 14 inches at ride height. So if you have like an 800 pound corner weight, I can do the math right now. Wait, (laughs) I got to do the calculator because I'm feeling kind of dumb lately. Huh. thought this was one of your specialties. I know, dude. I don't know what's happening. So 800 divided by 14 is 57 pounds. So you would need a 57 pound per inch spring rate for your primary rate, which first of all, they might not even make springs like that. That would be like a 100 over 100 or something. And that's another fun thing is that like a 150 over 200 spring rate is like 87 pounds per inch because they both compress at the same and the rate is actually softer than both of them. You like add them, then multiply, then divide. It's like a whole thing. You just have to believe me because I'm not going to be able to prove (laughs) it right now. Just like if you don't believe me, just Google it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you're probably not going to find a setup that's a 51 or whatever pound per inch spring rate 
So you're going to have to end up running a tender spring in that case. But also in that case, are you really using all your droop travel? Maybe not. So that's what I got to say. However, the new, a bunch of the new UTVs come with tender springs from the factory. And there might be something to that that I don't understand fully. Because a lot of them ride great. And the race setups will use that too. Mm-hmm. It's almost like not a tender spring though. It's like a 200 pound per inch, just like top spring that it's at ride height it's hitting against so i don't know if that's significantly different or not uh okay next question i don't think that cleared it up well (laughs) it's whatever you want it to be yeah it's whatever you want (laughs) at the end of the day (laughs) uh longer coils and less preload to lower ride height question mark so your coil length does not determine your ride height If like, let's say you have a Tacoma and you want a 650 pound spring on it for some reason, which I also think is usually bad. Um, Not quite as bad as a 700 pound, but still pretty bad. And you're like, oh man, you know what? I want to lift this thing. So you take that 650 pound spring and you buy a two inch longer one and you set it up at the same amount of preload, you put the truck on the ground and it's the same exact height. Well, that's because springs work by compressing like pounds per inch. So that 650 pound per inch coilover spring could be 10 feet long. And as long as at ride height, you still have the same amount of preload as you did before, it's gonna have the same ride height. Longer or shorter, It doesn't really matter. The only thing that you care about with spring length necessarily is that you want them long enough that when you fully compressed your suspension, the springs aren't touching each other Mm -hmm. at what we call block height, which can totally destroy your springs and end up snapping them. So longer, shorter coils, doesn't matter. The general rule of thumb for like a dual rate coilover, let's say you have a 14 inch coilover is that you want a 16 inch mainspring and then a 14 inch um, secondary spring. I think I'm getting those terms right. <laughs> Anyways, you want it to add up to like double the travel length plus two inches. I don't know where that came from, but <laughs> that's what I do. And it seems to work out great because then you have a ton of room before you hit block height and the springs last longer. Except for our pack racing springs, which just like exploded immediately. Do you remember those? We were just like riding on them and fully compressed. And Mm -hmm. then I put other springs that were the same rate on it and it raised it like two inches. Mm -hmm. That's how you know you have messed up springs. (laughs) So yeah, longer and shorter coils on a coil over. I think a lot of people get confused because in a coil spring application Mm -hmm. where the spring is separate to the shock, if you put longer coil springs on a vehicle, it will raise it. But in a coil over, because you have that top turny adjusting nut and you're setting the preload with that, that is just going to go up and down with the spring to set the preload Mm -hmm. totally independent of its travel length or its full length. So if you want to lower your ride height, you can take some preload out to a point, but then you're going to have detrimental effects to the suspension if you remove too much preload or you can lower your spring rate. And that's it. Cool. All right. Next question. Um, Building a CJ5, 
I know you don't like them. I like CJ5s. <laughs> Didn't we have one? I think we did. For yeah. a brief period of time. We did, for a little bit. <laughs> um, I want to keep Leaf Springs. What shock should I go with? Uh, I think you should buy $8,000 bypasses for it. <laughs> I mean, the, the problem is, like, I need more information, right? Yeah. The biggest thing that's going to determine all this is your budget, ultimately, and what right. kind of performance you want out of it. Because if you are going to just be doing some, like, mild forest trails and stuff, just do like whatever cheap two inch shocks they sell for that thing. But right. if you want to like race King of the hammers, you need bypasses and on all four corners and air bumps and all this other junk. So I can't really give advice on that. It's not as simple that. as that. Yeah. No, that's the problem is a lot of people like I get emails and I found that one of the issues is people don't know how to ask the right questions about it. But like it, most of it is your budget. Right. I would say. And what kind of performance you're expecting to get. Cause also if your budget is five grand, but you're only gonna do forest rail forest like service roads or like Cleghorn and Gold Mountain, trails like that, and mm-hmm. drive slow, mainly daily drive, you're probably better off with a cheaper suspension package than you are with a more expensive one and then save that money and use it for gas. Right. Or food, especially since gas is like five bucks a gallon right now. It's yeah. fucking crazy. I had uh, the pump shut off trying to fill the Tundra God. with a 26-gallon tank. Like, God damn. They got to raise that thing on it's the pumps rough. now. Yeah. So you can put yeah. more than 100 bucks in because it's ridiculous. Yeah. Also, a 26-gallon tank is pretty dumb <laughs> on a truck that gets such atrocious mileage. I know. That's I forgot. That's the other upgrade we want to do. Yeah. The 42-gallon tank, I think, is the way to go. All right. In a four-link rear with trailing arms, would a single coilover internal bypass be enough? Depends by what you mean is enough, of course. All the usual caveats. Um, The reason that a coilover and bypass separate from each other working together works so great is that you can kind of tune the coilover to handle like the low speed damping that maybe the bypass isn't as great at doing and you can share some of the load. So if you leave a little bit of valving in the coilover, it can heat up too, but a majority of your work is going to be done by the bypass. So mm-hmm. you could in theory do an internal bypass, like just straight on a four link rear. But if you have the room to fit it, um, just like any, whatever junk it doesn't even need to have a reservoir like two inch coilover you can get for super cheap put the coils on it and then have a bypass separate and the advantage of having a separate bypass is that it's externally adjustable Mm -hmm. which is like the great thing like what yesterday i adjusted the bypass on the back of the tundra took me two minutes Mm -hmm. maybe and we'll take it out and try it and see how it is right but if you want to tune an internal bypass you might have to open it up and like drill holes and move stuff around and change the main valving and blah, blah, blah. And you can do some with the external adjusters on them, but you can't like tune the zones, Mm -hmm. which you can with the external. So I would say, I don't know what you mean by be enough and uh, separate coilover and bypass is easier and externally tunable for the zones, which is super nice. And it's easier to tune that low speed compression, which can be an issue with bypasses, which you don't really want to like just run super heavy springs. So like your bypass zones aren't opening that much, but I guess you could. 
you're just taking away like each thing should have its own job and you don't right. want one thing to do too many things. It's just like people. <laughs> you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like right now I do too many things. I don't do any of them good. But if I did one thing, I'd be really good at it. Mm-hmm. So that's my allegory. <laughs> All right. Um, I like this next question. What's the worst shock spring setup you can run on a Tacoma? Oh, super heavy springs, like 650 or 700 pound springs, Um, especially on shocks that aren't tuned for it. Like if you just like um, some unscrupulous companies sell a kit where it's like a 5100 two inch shock that's valved for a spring rate that's like 420 pounds per inch. And they machine adapters to put like 650 pound springs on it. And it rides so Jeez. bad. But people don't, I mean, they don't really know. So on the forums, you'll have people who have never, don't know anything about suspension. And they're like, yeah, it rides great. And then they sell them. But they also break because the damper isn't rated for that spring rate. Um, I think that's pretty bad. My guess is that the foam shocks have to be pretty bad. Oh, what else? There are a couple of questions about those. Be the worst ones. I don't know. I think a lot of the like aftermarket leaf spring kits are pretty bad too. The stock leaf springs are so bad. They're like pr- almost anything is an upgrade, but I think a lot of the kits really miss the mark. They're like negatively affecting the rear end suspension geometry. So I don't know. I think sometimes. People spend money on things and it's not necessarily an upgrade. But if you think it's an upgrade, then it is. <laughs> so there you go. All right. How are spring lengths determined on dual rate coilovers? Oh, I already said this. Yes. You just take the travel length, add two <laughs> for the primary rate. And then the secondary rate, you can make uh, the length that is just your normal travel length. Although if you're messing around with spring rates, you can just run all the same length ones and then you can swap them around wherever you want. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or also you can just put a, like if you have to just put a two inch longer one on top instead of on bottom. And as long as it hits the stop nuts, fine. There's a ton of thread adjustment. So there's like room to goof up with a lot of the stuff. Uh, but while I was really dialing in spring rates, I was running all the same length coils so I could swap them. Also, so I could swap them front and rear too. Which is nice. Springs are kind of expensive. Yeah. Especially when you screw them up a bunch of times. And like, there's almost <laughs> no way to get around that too. I know. Pretty much people are like, what spring rate should I run for this? And then I try and explain that like with a longer coilover, you're going to need softer springs. And then it depends on the corner weights mm-hmm. and your ride height and your preload and how long it is. And maybe also how much nitrogen you put in it to a certain point. And then it's like, people just want a simple answer. But there, but yeah, there, there really isn't, isn't one. one. Remember how many we went through just trying to figure it out on the. Yeah, we were also cut? dealing with crappy springs, though. So now I only run iBox on everything, mm-hmm. which seemed to pretty much be fine. Um, I buy them on Summit Racing. I have an account where I can buy them direct through iBox, but Summit Racing is so cheap and the shipping is free. Mm. So, like, it ends up being the same price, but you get them the next day. Summit Racing is great, man. Yeah. I love them. I know. <laughs> They're so good. They're like Amazon for car parts, mm-hmm. I would say. All right. 
Have you seen those Sumo Spring bump stop replacements? Think they're legit or a gimmick? I think any bump stop that's longer than stock is not good, especially if it's rubber, because it tends to jounce out harder. Um, and also, I kind of question if, like, how are they actually designing them? Do they have a machine that sees how hard it is to compress the bump stop, and then they design one that's longer, but is like that same amount, or are they kind of just doing it at random? But I think I pretty much take those off customers' vehicles, and I usually throw them in the trash, and I put the stock ones back on, and they're like, it's so much better. Because you're just, if you're smashing into that rubber, it wants mm-hmm. to shoot right back out. It's not like an air bump where if you smash into it hard, it's not going to really want to push that axle back out. So I don't know. I think uh, I haven't seen a situation in which they are an improvement. And I think they're masking other issues that you have with your mm-hmm. suspension, like improperly valved shocks. And that is not the right way to fix it. And is probably worse. Okay. Do I keep leaf spring and add a quality shock or link with coilovers or front square body? Link it with coilovers. Duh. <laughs> I don't know, man. How much money do you have? I know. <laughs> you can get decent performance out of leaf springs with a shock. I mean, you're not going to be like smashing over whoops or nothing. But coilovers and a well set up link system is pretty expensive Mm -hmm. you can like i could do a three link in a weekend pretty easily if i didn't care about like suspension characteristics or up travel or having like stuff that's nicely designed and works well together like you can just slam that shit together right put some coilovers on it and maybe it's okay although i don't know because a couple of the dudes who have won hammers also yep. don't even know what their suspension geometry is. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I go through like phases where sometimes I'm like, it's everything you have to check it all. But then also like for the past 10 years, people have been using a three and four link calculator that doesn't even account for drive and brake bias. So like 99% of the anti-squat and anti-dive numbers you see online are incorrect. And that's huh. just the way it's been. And people haven't noticed because maybe it doesn't make that much of a difference. Or also, nobody's actually weighing their vehicle like I do to get the center of gravity height. They're just like, oh, you know, it's the center part of the motor or something. Mm. Whereas what you really have to do is like put it on the scales, raise the rear end a couple feet, measure how much different the weight is. And then you have to raise the rear end like two feet and then see what that equation comes out to. And you have to do it like a bunch of times and take the average in order to set your center of gravity height correctly. Cause that's like a huge determining factor for all of this. And people have just been like a completely guessing at their center of gravity height and B using a calculator that doesn't even calculate the suspension characteristics correctly. And it's just been like that forever. And I don't know. For the most part, it seems fine. So maybe it doesn't matter. Or maybe it does. <laughs> I'm not the guy who could tell you. I just don't know. But I do notice a huge difference in the trucks I set up when I fix the geometry. Like when I have a truck come in and the geometry is completely trash and the valving's bad. Fixing both of those can make such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm a believer in it. I'm a geometry guy. But also if someone's just like throwing links on and they have big enough 
bypasses it doesn't really matter and they're just smashing around off-road it's probably fine Mm -hmm. and i think also there's a confusion because a lot of the link geometry stuff is based around like drag racers where it does actually matter like if you're within 10 percent of your anti-squat um because you Mm -hmm. want to load the tires properly to take off from the course but if you're building an off-road truck it's like the margins of what's acceptable are so huge Mm -hmm. um but there is also like if you get a vehicle within like 20% of the ideal link setup, it's so much better than just throwing stuff on there. So there you go. That's my super wishy-washy <laughs> answer. But no, just add a shock on there. And then if you're wheeling around and you're like, I hate this, this sucks. I want to drive fast, blah, blah, blah. Put some coilovers on. But make sure you do like a real link kit that's like. You know, the geometry's plotted and stuff. And I'd stay away from like radius arm kits and stuff, unless you're towing with it, in which case radius arms are great. But yeah, I think you're better off just keeping it leaf springs if you're going to do radius arms. It's just my thought. Okay. I'm going to combine a few questions here because there's a, there's quite a few on shock tuning. Yeah. Um. So tips for tuning, tips for beginners, recommended tools for rebuilding, um, and can you judge based on butt feel or video or both? How can you tell what's too soft, too firm? I think I capture them all. Yeah. Um, man, how do you learn the basics of shock tuning? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, you just have to read a lot online, but mainly you have to just go out and do it and mess them up. Like you've got probably maybe 15 to 20 revalves that make the truck just like way worse ahead of you before you start being able to take a shock apart, put it back together and make it actually better, mm-hmm. which is kind of the same with everything. Um, AccuTune does have some great articles about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they seem pretty objective for the most part. Uh, those might be worth reading. And there's a lot of stuff on like crawlpedia and stuff, but you have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Cause there's some inconsistencies and yeah, I would say most people can't tell what too soft or too firm feels like because there are two situations. Imagine you're smashing through a whoop section, right? The first whoop you hit a little bigger than you intend and the front end of your vehicle raises super high in the air to the point where you get scared, slam on the brakes, and then it slams back down. So what's happened here is either, excuse me, A you have too little high-speed compression valving. Um, So if you don't have enough high-speed compression valving, it's not blowing off enough of the energy and you're going to slam into your bump stops and all that kinetic energy is going to harshly rise the chassis. But the opposite can also be true where if you have too much high-speed compression valving, it reaches a point at which where your tire might only move an inch or two up and then that whoop section continues to raise the tire, but it will not, the tire will not raise into the chassis and instead the chassis raises too much and Mm -hmm. slams up. So unless you've got like a zip tie or an O-ring around the shock shaft, or you're looking at a video where you can kind of like zoom in and actually see what the tires are doing, 
you might get confused. So like when I was tuning the rear end of Dave's truck for a while, I was trying to make the compression softer because I thought that it had too much compression, which was shooting the rear end up into the air when I hit a whoop section. But then when I put some zip ties on it and I took a video of it, I found that it was actually only using like three inches of shock shaft when it would hit a whoop section pretty hard. And I was like, oh, crap. So then I made it a little softer, but then that was also worse. And then, (laughs) but it did help a bit. And then I ended up adding like five or like three more leaf springs and bumps. And I changed where the shock was. And then I think my final setup was with like firmer springs, more up travel. And I added some extra nitrogen into it, which kind of acts as like spring force when you compress it. So it kind of went like from one end of the spectrum to the other. Okay. I don't think that helped, but I think, no. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's a little bit of everything. (laughs) Yeah. It's like a little bit of everything. And so that's the problem with those adjusters is that you might like smash through a whoop section, have the front end raised too much and make the wrong adjustment. So, so what are your tips for starting out when you're trying to figure out how to tune your shocks? Mm, I would say you definitely need to put something around the shaft so that you can see how much travel it is and find a couple sections that are indicative of the terrain that the customer is going to hit most frequently. So if you have a vehicle that has $5,000 worth of shocks on it, but he's like a cars and coffee meetup guy, mainly just like commutes on the 405 and stuff. You shouldn't really tune that to be able to hit whoops fast. You should tune it for on-road drivability because right. that's what the customer sees most of the time. Mm-hmm. And if you tune it for whoops, get rid of like a bunch. Let's say you pull a ton of low-speed compression out to get it moving fast over washboards and changing directions quickly and stuff. Well, it's going to suck on the road. And if the customer mainly drives on the road, you should mainly tune for the road. So, Yeah. And then uh, you just have to read and you have to mess it up a lot, honestly. I think, like, for me, I only learn by screwing stuff up. Well, you're always tinkering with the shock tuning. Like, every time we go out, you're like, okay, now I got to do this. Yeah. So I'm, like, pretty anal about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think I also have, like, hyperfixation, which is maybe caused by some attention deficit disorder, which has Mm -hmm. manifested itself into shocks over the past couple of years. Not a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, you got to use it to your advantage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So last part of that question, any recommended tools for rebuilding? Oh, yeah. Um, some of the spanner wrenches are nice for like adjusting that top color down, top collar down to set preload. But you can just take like a number two Phillips head and cut the end off it and then just shove that in there and adjust it like that. Mm-hmm. And also like IFS coilovers that have like pretty heavy spring rates, like 600 pound spring rates. Those have to be compressed before you adjust that top collar. Otherwise, you are risking stripping the threads on it. Because that top collar is just a little piece of aluminum in like fairly fine threads and it can just pull out completely as you're trying to adjust it. And I'd also put anti-seize on the shock body because it can like kind of gall against the aluminum. So I'll do that for where it sits. Uh, Besides that, for a lot of the shocks, you're going to need spanners to take them apart. 
and you can get like an adjustable spanner or what you can do is take a crescent wrench and weld like two pieces of solid rod to either end of the adjustable crescent wrench. That's the right size to fit in those holes for the spanner. And then that'll work across like almost all shocks. And besides that, you need like some picks mm -hmm. and you need a no loss nitrogen gauge. Cause the other thing I've had some people do is they'll go to check their air bumps just with a tire gauge. And then they're like, Oh, every time I check my air bumps, they're low. And it's because just that act of putting the tire gauge on when it goes like, Psh! That you could let out 50 PSI of nitrogen, like literally 50 PSI you could let out. Mm -hmm. So what you need is this thing and it spins down on top of the Schrader valve. It's its own little closed chamber. And then you turn a center thing down, which depresses the Schrader valve, which then makes the like air bump or the shock and the tool hold the same nitrogen, but it's still a sealed thing with a gauge on it. And then you fill that up and then close it up and then remove the tool off it. Otherwise, you're never going to be accurate with it. You also need to fill everything at full droop, too. So, like, with IFS coilovers, um, even when the suspension is fully drooped out, because there's some suspension binds sometimes, that won't be actually full droop, which I think anyone intuitively knows if they've installed coilovers on IFS, and they've had to, like, sit there, loosen everything, put a crowbar under it, stand on it, blah, 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 in order to try and get the front shocks in, which can be kind of a pain in the ass sometimes, for sure. So, yeah, I don't think you need that many specialty tools, though. A lot of it is just knowledge, and you have to be pretty anal about making sure that there's no air bubbles in the oil. Mm -hmm. And then everything else is just taking the seals out and putting them back in the same way they came out. Mm -hmm. And um, they're pretty simple, luckily. So as long as you're not taking apart some, like, super advanced technology shocks. But even those, it's like there's only so many ways you can change how a shock works. Even the internal bypasses is just a shock with a second cylinder inside of it. So you just need that $300 wrench and then <laughs> you can just kind of pull it apart normally pretty much. And everything goes back together the way it comes apart. So after you do like 15 to 20 coilovers, you're like, oh man, too easy. All right. Um, when are external reservoirs actually needed or recommended? I would say for like most off-road enthusiasts, external reservoirs are totally worth it. What it does is it takes the internal floating piston that makes a barrier between the oil and the nitrogen, and it puts it in a second thing, which lets you have way more oil, like a ton more oil. And um, it also keeps the pressure more consistent. Because the ratio of like the piston rod to the overall size, like volume of the chamber uh, is lower in that mm -hmm. case mm -hmm. because you have so much more oil. So it does help with heat, but it also really, really helps with keeping your pressures more consistent because when stuff heats up, it expands and there's more room for stuff to expand into. Um, I don't know how to quantify when you actually need or recommend any of this stuff. Really? Right. I think I have to constantly go back to saying like, it's about your budget and what you want, right? Because it's possible that like, let's say you take the stock shocks on like a TRD pro, they might work good, but I, you're probably in shock fade like five minutes into driving pretty hard in the desert. If you just have like a normal two inch coilover, especially on IFS. Mm -hmm. So, 
With a reservoir, you'll definitely last longer without shock fade, but maybe you don't need it. Maybe you're driving forest trails pretty slow and it's not necessary. Or I wonder how many people have like two and a half inch coilovers with reservoirs and they've never even got them hot before. Whereas like, man, you cook an egg on our shocks when we (laughs) stop, dude. They're so hot. Actually, they melted through our EVAP line, which I just like put electrical tape around, which it also melted through. So (laughs) now I'm out of ideas. That was it. That's all I could do. (laughs) So yeah, I don't know how to say when you actually need or recommend anything. Like it's Mm -hmm. ultimately it's up to you. Right. It's up to what you want. Just don't listen to people who are trying to sell you whatever the most expensive thing is. Because obviously like I don't sell this stuff for free. Like I'm making a profit on selling this stuff. Otherwise I couldn't afford to take the time to answer everyone's questions and right, revalves right. and help them out with springs and everything. Um, but I, I will never recommend the most expensive product unless someone's like, you know, this is my budget. I want to do this, this and this with it. I'm like, you know, it for you, you need the most expensive one. But right. usually I try and talk people into like a medium range product or something cheaper And there's some unscrupulous actors who have maybe never seen the inside of a shock before, but are selling suspension components or don't have like a firm understanding Mm -hmm. of suspension theory. Or they like, I don't know, man, some of the overland shops are so sketchy. One guy sent me a screenshot and some shop was literally like, oh, we don't have third gen forerunner shocks in stock, but we do have fourth gen forerunner shocks. So if you want to have that with the upgraded fourth gen valving on your truck, you could buy that from us right now. I was like, wow, dude, like literally this is what people are doing or they'll try and put like Tundra shocks or yeah, like Tundra shocks on a Sequoia and they're like, oh, they fit. And I'm like, yeah, they might fit, but A Sequoia has a linked rear suspension. A Tundra has a leaf spring rear suspension. So the shock tenon for a linked rear suspension is going to be much larger because there's more side loading and it has to be stronger instead of the leaf spring one. So they may fit, but they're just going to break. And also the valving is going to be shitty. Like I don't understand why people think that Shocks for another vehicle will be better than the shocks for their vehicle. (laughs) Like, where does that disconnect come from? I would love to get to the root of that and just figure it out. Mm -hmm. Because I think what happened is this is the worst time ever to buy shocks, right? Oh, God, yeah. The fucking, the ports are all backed up. People can't get their small parts from China. So some companies have year-long lead times. And so people are like, well, you know, I can't sell customers this stuff. Mm-hmm. I still got to sell something. So maybe I'll sell them something that isn't quite as good and just, you know, change the way I talk about it. Repackage it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they, I don't know. Maybe they think it's better. I don't know. I just think you have to be really careful with this stuff. But also, right. there's a lot of companies and people who have forgotten more about shocks than I know. Like, I send a bunch of people when they have super complicated issues to AccuTune mm-hmm. and El Cajon. There's Phil Licardi, Shock Therapy. There's the Suspension Jesus guy. Who's the other guy who's always dancing naked? 
Um, I can't help you there. Dude. Oh, man. I forget his name. I send people to him, too. Like, it depends where they are. So, you know, I'm not the end-all be-all on anything. Well, it sounds like everyone should just do their research. Yeah. And what the components actually achieve. Yeah. Look at your budget and look at what you're you're uh, using it for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, at a certain point... Instagram likes aren't worth it. So, <laughs> you know, a lot of people, it is part the show is part of it. Oh, right? yeah. You want to yeah. show off what you have. I mean, that's just it mm-hmm. everywhere in every yep. industry, right? I mean, I, the last Cars and Coffee we went to like a year or two ago, I checked every single person's rock sliders and I found one set of rock sliders that had scratches on them <laughs> in the entire thing. So, and that's okay if that's what you want to do, but don't get shocks that are tuned for off-road to drive your vehicle mainly on-road. Right. And what's annoying too is like even our super built extra cab solid axle truck, it's tuned for hitting whoops and whatever we want at speed. Mm-hmm. But because we drive it to and from the trail, we're still probably 80% street, 20% dirt. So even for right. that, it would probably make more sense to have a more street specific tune. Mm-hmm. But then that could be a good situation for the external adjusters too. Mm-hmm. Although there's no really making up for how much or for how big the bleed holes are in oh. the piston on that truck. Yeah. It's just yeah. gonna be a floppy. But that's also why it's good. Um I all think right. we're way off. Yeah, no, I kind of bounced around to try to yeah. yeah. So that was about external reservoirs. Um I'm going to go to, because we're talking about reservoirs. Yeah. What's the deal with compression clickers on reservoirs? How does it work? So there's a couple different products. There's Bilstein's anti-cavitation valve, which is what we run. And it's a valve stack that goes in your reservoir. And then there's Fox's dual adjusters, which is also a valve stack in the reservoir. And then there's King's mid-range adjuster, which is pretty much the same thing. Um, but they all work completely differently. So Bilstein's anti-cavitation valve, it's like... Literally, it's a second piston that goes in your reservoir and has valving on it and it's preloaded against the piston and it helps for like super high speed events. Um, I don't know how best to explain it. I think I did a video explaining it, but pretty much you are when oil is flowing past the shims, you're creating friction, which creates heat. And by putting a secondary set of valving in the reservoir. That's kind of the area that's easiest to cool and also has cooling fins on it, which is nice. And it reduces cavitation because somehow the force of the oil having to go through that second piston, like reduces the ability for little bubbles to get in or something. I like, I had this explained to me very well by someone and I was like, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) So, I'm like repeating things that I don't necessarily understand right now because uh, I've had a couple like I've had like an engineer explain it. A guy who's been tuning shocks for like 30 years, explain it a bunch of other people. And every time I'm just like, I don't I don't buy it. Sorcery. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no, but I don't <laughs> buy it. Um, I think Fox's dual adjusters are like pretty objectively by far the best product for that. The low speed compression adjuster is like a stand. It, it's almost like a float in a carburetor where there's like a needle that goes into a hole and you pull that needle out more to let more fluid flow or push it in more to let less fluid flow. And that's how you control some of the low speed damping, which is great for 
the internal bypasses because then it gives you a finer yeah. control over the low speed, which is kind of like their Achilles heel. So I think that's a great combination of products, which I'm excited to try and flounder and not be able to tune right and then get really mad and give up. <laughs> um, and then the high speed one is adjusting the uh, preload on valve discs. And so with that, if you have the low speed compression adjuster, like fully closed or close to fully closed, it's going to affect the high speed. And then the high speed can also affect some of the low speed um, not as much, but more so the other direction. So the idea of having them separate is kind of not true, but it does work well. And, uh, I think it's a great product. It, it'll adjust your valving like 150% or something. Hmm. Whereas the King one only does like 40%. And hmm. the Kings is a mid range too. So there's no difference between the low speed and high speed. So it's harder to make like suspension adjustments that actually change how you want them to. And with the King adjuster, I think it's got like 30 to 35 clicks, but only like the first four or five clicks on the adjuster really do low speed compression. And then beyond that, it's like kind of all over the place. And you're like, there's this orifice in them that's kind of like triangle shaped. And the further out you have it, the more oil that can flow through that. Hmm, and okay. the further in it is, the less oil. So that's how they do that. And I think, I don't know. I don't think it's that great. Um but again, a lot of the end users don't really know how to make meaningful adjustments anyways, I think. So it's a good idea and they definitely sell shocks. But I think um, Fox has a definite huge win with that dual adjuster, which is nice, yeah. which is what we're putting on our personal truck. Right. So and uh, I think I've said it before, but they are great for rock crawlers that don't have sway bars. To kind of do like a bullshit, not really the correct way, but a way to add in some low speed compression mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. act as a sway bar. So, yeah, that's how they work. Okay. Pretty much. It's just a, it's a secondary piston, essentially. You can think about it like that. Yeah. That's in there. And it reduces cavitation, puts the heat where it's easier to cool, and lets you externally adjust your low and high speed compression kind of to a point with caveats, of course. Right. It's like pretty much everything I say, you could put an asterisk after that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> and probably some of the stuff I've said, I've, I've mixed up high and low speed <laughs> when I'm saying things. So just everything has an asterisk. Yeah. Uh, all right. You kind of already answered. What are your thoughts on Ironman's foam cell pro shocks? Yeah, I think they're dumb. <laughs> uh, when should I use uh, limit straps? Yeah, you should in theory, use limit straps on everything because your coilover isn't really designed to be the top out stop for your suspension. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing like low speed rock crawling, I don't really think it's a big deal. And you can just use the coilover as a limit strap and it's not that big a problem, especially if you have a bypass because you can kind of tune the rebound zone to be like a nice top out stop. And then it's not that big a deal. Or like with the 8112s, you don't really need limit straps because it has that really good rebound zone. Right. So kind of like calm it down. But if you're like jumping your truck a bunch and or it shoots out to full droop pretty quickly uh, with just like a normal coilover shock, you should definitely have limit straps. And then there's a rule for limit straps too, where you're supposed to assume that they stretch like one inch per every 12 inch of strap. But there's also like 37 different kinds of limit straps. Like you can get like quad wrap limit straps or you can like double them up and stuff. And then of course they have less stretch. So like with a 16 inch coil over, 
If you're using like an 18 inch limit strap, you might limit that 16 inch coil over to 14 and a half inches mm, mm-hmm. because you're going to assume it's going to stretch more, but you can also double up on the limit straps or get like the nice actual for real racing ones. Cause I would say a majority of the limit straps sold are all the same exact one that people are just rebranding. Like you can even, you can go on import Yeti and look up where all these people import mm-hmm. their stuff from. And it's like the same company that makes the limit strap. There's rebranded and it's like a little seatbelt thingy. Yeah. So Yeah. I would say low speed, rock crawling, mild trails, etc. Not a big deal. But if your suspension is cycling to full droop quickly and violently often, I would definitely put them on. And honestly, they're a good idea to have on every shock too. And lots of places won't warranty their dampers unless you have limit straps and bumps. Because shocks aren't meant to go to full bump or full droop really by themselves. But you can. Just don't tell people I said that <laughs> and your warranty claim will get denied, but you can. All right. How often should I change my shock fluid? This particular person has 6112s on his daily commuter. 6112s, I don't believe are end user rebuildable. Um, I think when they charge them with nitrogen, it has to happen in this like giant machine because I want to say they don't have a Schrader on them. I don't know. I have some 6112s in the shop right now. I should look at them. But uh, 6112 fronts are like a two and a half inch front coilover that's priced to compete with the two inch coilovers from other brands. It's a pretty good product. Uh, I believe you're supposed to rebuild them. Man, every manufacturer has different recommendations for rebuilding them. And a lot of them are just to get out of warranty claims. Like, I think in the Fox brochure, it says if you use your shocks 100% off-road, you should rebuild them like every thousand miles. And if you're racing, you need to rebuild them every 500 miles. Okay, but there are races that last longer than 500 right. miles. So how are you supposed to do a test and tune and then do it and then rebuild them? You know what I mean? Right. Or if it's like only, if you use them only street, I think they say 30,000 miles. But I would wait until you either notice shock fluid leaking out or that your suspension performance has gone down. Mm-hmm. So you should be able to feel it when your shocks need rebuilt because mm-hmm. it won't be as good. And I don't know. I'm not that into just like just rebuilding them at the maintenance intervals because they say to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it really depends how you use them and how you overheat them and stuff. Because I think like the way we use our shocks, we probably should rebuild them like every 2,000 miles. Right. But I'm not gonna. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, but with 6112s, I think you're just going to have to buy new ones, dude. Or if you're wheeling them hard enough that you need to swap out the fluid, you probably need to jump up to a two and a half inch with a reservoir, which then can be very easily rebuilt. Okay. Well, here's the same question as before. Shock tuning tips for yeah. beginners, recommend tools for rebuilding. Yeah. yeah, man, shock tuning's hard, dude. I don't know what to say about it besides that. I messed it up a lot. And still, like, if I take a truck out, if I took a truck out today and I revalved it, there's a good chance I make it worse still. So there you go, man. <laughs> uh, all right. Bilstein 8112 zone control versus 3.0 or 2.5 with and without a secondary bypass. Hmm. Again, I think it kind of depends on your budget and extent and intended use. Uh, and the zone control 8112 versus just a two and a half inch coilover it's not really a comparison you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't compare an internal bypass with a full-size piston and five zones to a normal shock. 
Uh, it's just not the same product. And what's crazy is it's cheaper than a lot of the 2.5s. Uh, I think it's, it might be cheaper than all the 2.5s. Hmm. So, yeah, I don't see, I can't think of a situation which I would recommend just getting a more expensive coilover over a bypass with five zones that's been tuned to your truck. Uh, what some people do is they'll do kits for the stock travel. 8112, all the 8112 stuff is all for stock travel. So it's not thinking about long travel kits or anything. But I've seen some people do like a two and a half inch coilover with a secondary bypass, which can be great because you can take the coilover and make it do some of the like low speed damping, which will kind of like calm down your handling. And then, um, although handling really should be done by like sway bars and springs. And then you can uh, tune the bypass for like ride quality off-road because like just a bypass can be kind of detrimental to your on-road drivability for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Anyone who says otherwise, it was full of it. Um, but that's really where the 8112 shines because it's tuned specifically to the vehicle and it still has that digressive main piston. So it's like better handling on-road and better drivability off-road. It's the best of both worlds. The one part that it kind of sucks at is like washboard and like side-by-side chop because it does have that digressive main piston. So you just can't really get the shaft speed. You can't get out of that digressive curve unless you're hitting it pretty fast. Uh, Whereas if you had like maybe normal coilover, the linear piston with a bunch of bleed, you could get that tire moving way faster in Mm -hmm. the low end, Mm -hmm. which might help. But a lot of people have just like a two and a half inch coilover which is valved to do all the valving for that corner of the vehicle. And then they add on a bypass that just has like universal valving too. So the coilover and bypass don't know that they're working together and they both just have their full valving in them and it's bad, but they don't know. So like, yeah, there are probably people running around with like $7,000 suspension setups that ride worse than just like some bolt on, you know, coilovers and they don't know. Yeah. So that's frustrating. And then I don't know at what point you would want to jump from a two and a half inch coilover to a three inch coilover in the front. But I still say that a five zone bypass is not comparable to just a normal shock. Um, I don't like I don't even know what to say because it's just not <laughs> the same product. Yeah. It's two completely different like product lines and two completely different like ranks of suspension. It's so far beyond the other one. It's just not the same. Okay. So, and we bought our 8112s for our truck. We paid full price for them, purchased right. them because I've installed, I don't know, a dozen mm-hmm. and I've seen firsthand how good they are. Yeah. And I was right. like, crap. And we kind of bought a Tundra to run them on. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, we love our Tundra though. Yeah. That and the center console. Yeah. The center console is so nice. <laughs> it's the way to go. You have a charcuterie board on it. All right. The next one, I think you answered earlier already the shock length versus sag point. How do you decide how long of shocks and where to set right height? Sag point. Fucking mountain bikers, dude. They always say that <laughs> shit. Just say ride height. Um, how do you decide on how long of shocks and where to set ride height? The number one most important number that you need is your compressed length. That's what determines if you can fit a shock or not, because you don't want to be bottoming out into your coilover. So when I'm measuring for shocks, I fully compress the suspension 
And then I decide where I can put the upper mount and where I can put the lower mount. And I take that measurement. And let's say your compressed length is 16 inches. I'll try and find a shock that has a compressed length of like 15 and a half inches or something so that there's room to have like an air bump and stuff. Mm. Um, yeah. So compressed length is number one. That's really what you want to be searching by. And you can kind of mess with stuff a bit. You can build like short body shocks or those internal bypasses I'm putting on the Nissan. Yesterday, I put one inch shorter eyelets on them to get a shorter right. compressed length. So you can kind of cheat that. That's how I fit. I'm going to fit 14 inch coilovers almost completely in the fender well area with that, with a, like tons of up travel at a low ride height. So that should be good. But yeah, it's all about compressed length for me. Okay. Everything else is kind of whatever. When does valving need to be changed? When you think it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <Really? laughs> like for real though. <laughs> Sorry, I wish there was another thing. I, I will say also that if you're like out of the adjustment, if you have external adjusters and you actually know what you're doing with them and you're out of the adjustment range for those, then you need to revalve it. Or if you have bypasses and you're getting pretty close to a tube fully opened or fully closed, mm -hmm. then you need to revalve it. So... Yeah, but literally it's up to you. That's the worst part of this stuff. Have you heard anything about the Dobinson monotone shocks? I think they meant monotube shocks. <laughs> I group like Dobinson, ARB, and Old Man Emu all into the same category in my mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's just like a normal, it's just like another overseas shock manufacturer. I don't think, it, I don't see anything special with them. Um, I mean, it's just a normal shock. Mm -hmm. so i don't know i think they had a weird like guerrilla marketing campaign over the past like couple years that made them become more popular mm -hmm. but i've only installed two sets i think for land cruisers and they were better than the stock ones but that's it and their coil springs are teal which i think is gross <laughs> so that's all i gotta say and really all this stuff is mainly about like you know fitting the vibe of your build you got to yeah. get like the right color shocks. That's right. That's or right. That's who so has important. the best hats. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Coilovers and bypasses together set up in theory. Did I kind of talk about that already? Yeah, you kind of did. But is there anything else you want to add to that? Not really. All right. It's hard too. I would still mess with our other truck too. I'm still not like fully happy with how it works. Magnetic suspension technology. How do they work? Yeah. And I think in like the eighties Cadillac had this like magnetic ride suspension stuff and it would like sense obstacles on the ground. So there's this like uh, commercial where a Cadillac like drives over a speed bump and it doesn't move at all because the tire like shoots way up into the fender well for the speed bump. And I think they all work for like 3000 miles. And then in typical Cadillac fashion, it just completely fails. It's kind of like the KDSS or the hydraulic suspension on the old uh, Lexuses or the new Lexuses where they're good in the beginning. And then like five years later, it's just not good anymore. <laughs> and then you have to pull them out and just put normal stuff in it. At what point is a 12 inch shock well tuned better than an eight inch. And at what point is a 16 inch better than 12 inch? Wherever you think it is. That's <laughs> the worst part about this stuff. I don't know. I uh, was wheeling with a guy with a, um, with one of those shock relocations in the rear and 14 inch shocks. 
and it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And then meanwhile, our truck has like a 9.5 inch bypass in the rear and it's great. So it's hard to tell. I mean, Mm -hmm. with more travel, you have more room for error. But I also think that a lot of people are ruining their suspension geometry by just fitting longer stuff in it. It's like I've had mid travel kits come into the shop and I put it on the lift, put it at full droop. And then I turn the wheel completely one way and the CVs are a hundred percent bound. So like the, the engineers from the factory, they don't just set the suspension limits randomly. They're not just like, Mm -hmm. eight inch shocks are cheap. We'll just put that here. It's all designed to work in those specific constraints. So if you have like way more travel in the back, you might have issues where your pinion angle kind of goes to shit or you don't have enough down pressure at full droop, or it can cause some other weird handling characteristics. Um, and same in the front. And also your stock suspension geometry in the front might kind of go to shit if you have another inch or two of down travel. And like for a while I was planning on doing kind of like flexier uh, link suspension bits. And then I was going to offer a shock package that was like two inches longer But after plotting some of the popular, like, you know, like the forerunners have link suspension in the rear, Mm -hmm. I plotted a bunch of those. And then I saw what would happen if I made them droop out two or three inches more. And the geometry is horrible. And I was like, well, this is probably a downgrade, so I won't do it. So unless you're doing like a long arm kit on it, that's been designed by someone who understands how it works. I think uh, that can be a downgrade too. But yeah. I don't know. I think like I had one guy who decided he wanted to do a two in 2.0 by 12 smooth body in the back of his Tacoma instead of an OEM fit valve to his truck bypasses two and a half inch bypasses. And he's like, yeah, I want the more um, articulation. And then he ended up buying the bypasses in the end Mm. and cutting off his other thing. So because it handled bad and also when you get to full droop again, you don't have enough down pressure. So it's like the tires down there, but it's like when I first got into off-roading flex ramp competitions were super popular mm-hmm. and people were doing the dumbest shit possible to make it up flex ramps. I'm talking like, like coil springs that you can just like pull out at full droop because the axle is just sitting there. It's completely useless and mm. shit like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Yeah dual shackles on leaf springs <laughs> fucking stupid stuff like that all right uh next question more related to setting up coilovers where do you start with choosing springs and spring rates this guy's doing a first time one ton three link build going on a front of a first gen tacoma yeah so it depends how long your coilovers are going to be because if let's say you're putting 10 inch coilovers in the front you're going to have a way, way firmer spring rate than if you have 16s. So the first thing you have to figure out is at ride height, how much droop are you going to have? So if we just walk through it, like I think the ideal coilover for the front of a first gen Tacoma is a 14 inch. 16s are stupid and they're hard to fit. That's what I've decided. After <laughs> ours, we're almost had to poke through our hood. Oh, right. Um, our truck's dumb too, though, where if I hadn't extended the bump stop one inch, um, I would have had to cut like an inch into the hood for articulation, which is dumb. I'm never going to build a truck like that again. (laughs) Although it was pretty good off-road. 
So you have to figure it out. So let's say you're running a 14 inch coil over in the front and let's say you want six inches of up travel, eight inches of down travel at ride height. And you want one inch of preload. So you have that eight inches of down travel, the one inch of preload. Actually, let's make it two inches. So that way you need something that is compressed 10 inches at ride height. What you can do is you can put a spring on that shock when you decide it's final orientation, run that top spinny thing down so it's just touching the spring, set it on its own weight, and then measure how many inches compressed that spring is. So let's say you have a 250 pound spring, you run the top thing down so at full droop, it's just touching the top of the spring, set it on its own weight, and it that spring compresses four inches. You can infer that your corner weight for unsprung weight is going to be around a thousand pounds because you take four times mm-hmm. 250 pounds per inch for the spring, blah, blah, blah. So like, unfortunately it's completely different and you can have two trucks with the same up travel, but have different spring rates mm-hmm. because of the coil over length and mounting angle and how much crap you have on the front. So like our truck, we run a, what, like a 150 over 200 and, uh, And then I think we swapped to a 100 over 150. So I get a bit more preload out of it. And those soft springs kind of suck for handling, but they're pretty rad off-road. I usually say you should run the lightest spring possible. So yeah, there's really no way to get around actually measuring it. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because with different length coilovers, you need different rate springs. So, which doesn't mean you need different length springs. You need different rate the length is independent. Mm-hmm. So there you go. All right. Uh, shock to lift ratio when wanting low center of gravity. Yeah, I think a lot of the low center of gravity stuff is kind of overrated. And people will be like, oh, I have X amount of up travel at Y frame height, but I've built so many of these trucks that I can just kind of tell when someone's completely lying. Or like this last truck that I completely redid, it had five inches of shock shaft. But it was completely bound up with three inches of shock shaft still showing. So you got to kind of take everything you see with a grain of salt. Um, And really, like, low center gravity is great, but you should decide what you're going to do with the vehicle. So if you want to smash through whoops, there's just no way to get around. You need a certain amount of up travel. Mm -hmm. And you can do some tricks to fit. Like a solid front axle, you can have it bottom out pretty high if you start bending some of the links and you kind of get creative and cut away parts of the frame in the front. Um, But you got to decide like what your dollar to fund ratio is there. Mm -hmm. Like, is it worth 20 hours of work to get an extra one inch of up travel? Or would you rather take that 20 hours and go camping? Yeah, I mean, yep. So that didn't answer that. Next one. <laughs> Why don't you wheel every weekend? Oh, man. Yeah. We haven't for a while. So. Long time. <laughs> like years. We do. Um, we've gone more than every weekend since we've been back from our trip. Yeah, we but Usually have. we go during the week, too, which is the way to go. Yeah. Wheel every um, week. Yeah. Day. And it's yeah. <laughs> it's cool to be like 30 minutes away from the desert, too. But I've just gone to Ocotillo Wells. Like since I was 10, I've been yeah. going there. I'm just kind of Ocotillo Wells out. I know. Like It's just boring. 
There's only so many things you can do. We'll be there this weekend. Yeah, (laughs) we'll also be there Saturday. So there you go. Uh, Are you guys going to move to Colorado? No. (laughs) I think we might move to Utah. Colorado's pretty expensive. I know. We'll just be trading out expensive California for expensive Colorado. Although it's beautiful. It is beautiful. I also don't like the snow. So we're going to have to probably deal with that in Utah. too. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Parts of Utah get super hot in the summer, though. I know we have to figure out the sweet spot and I I think Utah's getting more popular too. Yeah, it's true. Everywhere is people fucking hate California God, because state's a dumpster. Yeah, it is. It's been pretty bad. Yeah. It's a fucking dumpster here. It's the worst. It's our property here is really nice, but we have to deal with stupid rules and California fire insurance and all that. So. Yeah. taxes and, and they make it really hard to live here or to be a small business owner oh yeah they like <laughs> disincentivize small businesses mm-hmm. it's pretty gross uh okay back to shocks what's a better what's better a properly tuned coilover or a coilover paired with a three two bypass uh are you saying like not tuned coilover with a three two <laughs> bypass i don't really understand the question um whichever one you think is better is better there you go uh, i think with a properly tuned coilover you can get some pretty good performance like our front end was awesome just with the acv and the linear piston with a ton of bleed and stuff mm-hmm. it would be better with a bypass but you would have to tune it with the bypass so i don't know it's ultimately a bypass costs more and it's better so you have to decide does that does it justify itself? Like, mm-hmm. is that extra money getting back to you? Right. So you have to take an honest assessment. It, of course, like I said before, your budget, driving style, where you wheel, etc. Um, how did you get into suspension tuning? My back is broken in three places. Um, yep. And if I don't have a vehicle that rides well off road, I literally can't do it. And I'm also my idea of off-roading is also different than a lot of people's and I don't just like drive five miles an hour on flat dirt roads. I'm not like, yay, this is fun. Uh, that's like my least favorite thing. It fucking, it drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. So I just need something that was tuned well. And then Bilstein really helped us out with, um, a couple of revalves on our coilover and bypass. I think actually it was only like two and then I've messed with it a little bit from there. And then, yeah, I just opened up a couple coilovers like five years ago or whatever. And I was like, this doesn't seem that hard. Mm-hmm. I bet I could figure it out. And then I just ruined a bunch of stuff and I'm still ruining stuff today. <laughs> it's full circle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to end with that one. Cause I like it. Okay. Uh, you already answered. Our reservoir is worth the extra money. Mm-hmm. Yes. And no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. How do you know if you need slower rebound? I'm always confused when people say slower because does that mean you need more or less rebound? Mm. But let's say you're hitting a whoop section. Um, pretty much you can tell because in between the whoops, the goal of the suspension is to have your tires on the traction surface as much as possible. So if your tire isn't shooting back out, to the whoop in order to absorb the next impact 
and your truck is kind of like diving into it. That's usually the term they use, diving, mm-hmm. when there's uh, too much rebound, okay. which is not letting the tire droop out fast enough. Um, then you would need to pull some out. And rebound is affected by bleed too. Um, so like for solid axles, I think typically running a ton of bleed is super beneficial because it helps with changes of direction with lots of unsprung weight. Um, but it also kind of sucks though, because like when you're adjusting the low speed, it can really ruin drivability and like your cornering and stuff will end up sucking. And like ours has so little low speed of anything that it gets like weeble wobbly around turns. Like there's almost not enough valving to fight the springs and it goes like, whoop, 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 which is annoying. But then also if you, you should really be fixing that with a sway bar, cause it's like, it's not the job of the shock. It's not really the job of the shock to reduce body roll to a mm-hmm. certain point. Um, so I hope that didn't confuse you <laughs> more than you were before. <laughs> But yeah, the term like slower or faster, I guess it kind of makes sense. Yeah, but I can see that. I don't know. Kind of confuses me. I have to use like the same five terms for everything. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I will get mixed up, mixed up. in yeah. my head. Yeah. I can see I'm sure that. already I've probably said things opposite of what they actually are. Forget that asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> How much does vehicle weight play into proper shock tuning? It does. Mainly for like spring selection and stuff, but um, it's hard for me to say because it is important. But I also think that people think it's like the end all be all. And that's like the main thing that you need where Mm -hmm. I'll get emails where people are like, I have a vehicle that weighs this much and I need shocks for it. I'm like, okay, if you have a vehicle that weighs X amount and you have a shock with eight inches of up travel. Um, it's going to be tuned differently than a shock with four inches of up travel. So one with four inches of up travel is going to need to be significantly firmer so that you're not just blowing through your travel. Whereas with eight inches, it's going to have to be softer. So you are using all that up travel. So yeah, it does matter. I mean, it's hard to say how much does it play into proper shock tuning? Everything plays into it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Yeah. How do you say how much? I don't know. (laughs) All right. Last question. What's the best way for the average person to support off-road recreation besides not being shit? Yeah. I mean, don't post illegal stuff, I think, Mm -hmm. is like essentially what I've boiled it down to. Because it's also unfortunate because a lot of people do like trash cleanups, but then they post so much about it that groups will use them as proof that off-road areas are fucked up and trashed all the time too. Mm -hmm. So that's why like, you don't see us like it's I'm cleaning up trash constantly when we're in the desert, but I don't post about it Yeah, because that's like the double edged sword is that they're like, look, do you see all the cleanups these people have to do? That's because off-roaders don't care and they trash the place. (laughs) But mainly it's like, got it. When, if you do illegal stuff off-road, that's bad, but it's not as bad as posting it. Like if you post someone else's illegal stuff that they've done off road, you're doing way more damage than them. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, if we got rid of like four Instagram accounts, (laughs) it would get rid of like 90% of the arguments that the anti-access people have. And it's like the same group of companies that are involved with these same like influencers who get shit shut down. It's Mm -hmm. so frustrating. And then, you know, I like, 
And also those companies, if you reach out to them and ask them about supporting it, not even mentioning that they are currently like through their actions, get going to get off-road land shut down. And they're giving other people like reasons why they hate off-roaders. They just ignore you. Yeah. Like I'll be like, hey, would you guys consider, you know, it's really cheap and right. helps the legislative battle. But keep in mind, like having a bunch of trash in an area has never closed an area. It gets closed legislatively. Mm-hmm. So if you're not supporting the legislative battle. Right. You know, unfortunately, it doesn't do that much. I still think those trash cleanups are good, though. But that is the double edged sword of them that they're used as proof of why places need to be shut right, down too. Right. Still pick up your trash, but Yeah. So, I don't know. And support, you know, companies that support off-road. Yeah, definitely. There's a list of like Corva supporters and uh places that support places like Friends of Oceano Dunes and mm-hmm. there's some other groups that are really good. Um and then also unfortunately, there are some off-road groups that don't do anything positive for the off-road community but pretend to and get tons of money and it's like, it's almost worse. Like you're better off not giving any money to them if you want land to stay open because there are fucking off-road groups that are just like drinking wheeling clubs Mm -hmm. that have like the face and persona of helping off-road. But you should always ask them like, what have you guys done to keep trails and public land open and if they can't be like hey we won this legislative battle we fought for this we're on all of these different committees blah 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 you know we got 85 million dollars put back into the ohv trust then i don't know you should maybe yeah. put your money elsewhere and cancel your memberships i've, I've been a member of a couple off-road places and i've had to cancel them because i'm like oh wow you know now i see you guys don't do anything to help. Right. You're just out there fundraising for yourselves. And unfortunately that's the way of a lot of nonprofits, like especially the, Mm -hmm. the fucking veteran nonprofits are so bad. Like they just, Mm -hmm. they just get money and they use it to like go on trips. Yeah. That's why I like things like charity navigator where you Mm -hmm. can look up how transparent they are with their money and what they're actually doing. Yeah. And speaking of cool websites, you can also go on importyeti.com. Mm-hmm. And you can see all overseas imports are public record. So if you're curious where any of your shocks, where the parts come from, type in that company into importyeti.com and you'll see how many overseas imports they've had. So mm-hmm. that was really eye opening to me too when I first found out about that website. And then I finally had definitive proof. And I was like, wow, a lot of these companies are branding themselves as like made in America stuff, mm-hmm. but they've had five over 500 imports from china in the past five years right like that's crazy yeah so be careful or people will say like assembled in usa or the sketchiest thing is when they don't even say it they just imply it yeah that's what's scary yeah works same for rooftop tent manufacturers too you can type them in and yep see where they're buying from you can type us in and see where we got our tents from Mm mm-hmm It'll show we have one shipment. <laughs> yep, one shipment. And I was like, wow, I lost a money, a lot of money on making these actually good. <laughs> Not doing that again. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you know, at least we've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of our tent. 
And it's yeah. held up through fucking oh, whoops. for sure. Running Hammer Trails, Rubicon, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Yeah. I think we might get a hard shell tent now, though, for the Tundra. Yeah. That would be nice. I think to, that's the future. Yeah. Not have to take all of our crap out of the bed God, every time yeah, we go to sleep. Super big nightmare. <laughs> that was awful. We've also swapped the Tundra from the medium duty pack to like the pre-runner pack. And now I hate it. Probably go back. Probably. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what to do. It needs like the pre-runner pack is way too soft. Mm-hmm. I've had to crank in so much compression on the bypasses to make it work good. And you put any weight in it and it squats so much. Yep. It's so frustrating. Yep. But the medium duty pack, the Tundra has this terrible like bed bounce on the freeway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so annoying. And I think a lot of it is because the Tundra has this like revolutionary three stage frame where the back is C channel. And it's like, so you get maximum flex with this. But then why do all the other manufacturers advertise that they have a boxed frame? (laughs) like obviously that's superior like anyone who knows anything about metallurgy you take a c it's super weak you add on that fourth edge and suddenly it's incredibly strong so i think i have to box our rear frame yep because it's gonna bend so i'm also gonna make some frame plates for it maybe but there's like a bunch of stuff on the frame that's in the way Mm. we also um swapped our brakes yeah. It's a lot better now. They're a ton better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've got drilled and slotted rotors and like super extreme pads because, uh, I mean, that truck is supposed to be our tow rig. Right. For a trailer we don't have. Yeah. Well, you know, planning for the future. Yeah. That's how we do stuff. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. I mean, I bought like transmissions for trucks I don't own yet before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because they're a good deal. I don't know. I have a problem. Yeah. But besides that, the Tundra's great. We did just have to swap the upper control arm because we went through like three bu- three sets of bushings in one month. And I, I really think that those bushing upper control arms, the tolerances on them just aren't good. And if you're actually off-roading with them, you're going to get jacked up. But then I hate yeah. the high upper control arms because they don't dampen vibrations and they're super harsh and any exposed joints just wear out so fast. Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how it does this weekend in the desert. Yeah, I think it'll be better. The other issue with the aftermarket control arms is that you're changing the caster just with the upper control arm. Not like you you take the upper control arm and you give it two degrees more caster mm-hmm. to make up for that you have a higher ride height and you want to fix the caster at your ride height, right? Right. But you have to move the lower. So I think a better way to do it would be to like move the lower forward and move the upper back slightly to achieve that two degrees because when you add two more degrees of caster into that upper control arm you're changing the caster throughout the entire travel of the suspension Mm -hmm. so at full bump there's probably close to two degrees more caster than it's designed for and the suspension hasn't been designed for that so it's applying loads to everything differently okay <laughs> Did I lose you? You yeah, I was following for a bit, but yeah. And then well, you lost me at the end there. I think that's one of the <laughs> issues with it. So yeah, to summarize, shocks are good. <laughs> uh it's whatever's in your budget. Yeah, it's mainly budget. Application mm-hmm. and whatever you think works. Yeah, man. That's it. And do your research and learn what each component actually does. 
Yeah. And also there's a huge thing to be said for things that are actually tuned. So if there's like, if there's a kit where you can put like a 14 inch smooth body on your truck, but it's just universal valving versus like an application specific, like 10 inch shock might think like if the extra work to have just like a universal valve shock is worth it. I think that's why like, um, some companies will just like revalve your shocks for you. And they have like a list of trucks that they know the valving for. And I think that can be beneficial, but the way I always do it is like, if you buy shocks through us, at least this like 7100s, mm-hmm. um, I'll revalve them once for you for the cost of parts. Like you pay shipping and parts and my labor is free on it. And I think that's a little better because then you get it on and then you can say like, I, want more blank Mm -hmm. or less blank Mm -hmm. or when I'm doing this, this happens. And then I can be like, okay, well let me fix that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but I also just don't have like a database full of everyone's valving. Yeah. There's something to be said for that. It's hard too. And there's a lot to it sometimes too. There's like all different kinds of stacks. And that's why I want to have like an actual suspension pro come on. And explain like pyramid yeah. stacks, flutter stacks, rate plates, that all that kind great. of stuff. Because I can tell you what I think about them, but I'm just not confident that I am completely correct. Uh, I think you have a video on the 8112s and how they work. Yeah. Uh, Bilstein let me use their display thing for it. And actually, I have um, a bypass here. It's actually in our bedroom. Oh, yeah. I moved it there. <laughs> um, yeah. That I'm going to like cut the edges off of it and I'll be able to use it as a display to kind of show everyone how like bypass tubes actually work. It's essentially a one-way valve with a spring in it and you can adjust the spring. You can either adjust the preload on the spring, just like you preload a normal coil, or you can put heavier rate springs in it, which changes when they open or close. Um, so we'll put some more videos out Mm -hmm. about shocks and, yeah, after the Nissan's done, I'll do a bunch. I was right. thinking about doing a video of our Tacoma build, but I think it's going to be so weird that there's no point. And it's just going to slow me down. Well, we don't want that. Yeah, because <laughs> it's already going to take me like a year because I want to TIG weld all of it. I have to somehow fit the three-inch internal bypasses in the front, sway bars, the rear end with the coilovers, bypasses, and airbags on a mezzanine. And then I'm doing a three link with no pan hard. And so oh, yeah. I have an interesting plan for that. I'm going to have to show how I do that. I just think it's going to be too weird. There's no point. Well, we'll no. see. Yeah. I kind of, uh, the video thing, like there's just no return on investment. I don't even understand. Uh, you can look up how much people make on YouTube. It's yeah. kind of accurate from uh, socialblade.com. And dude, some of these YouTube guys, I'm just like, I know how long it takes to make those videos and you're making like six bucks an hour or something. Right. And, and we like to put out information that's useful to people too. Yeah. Like your videos on the shocks and things like that. So Yeah. Those are great. Mm-hmm. And like that stuff, I, a lot of those are even unlisted, so you can't search for them. So it's just like, if you go on our website and you're trying to think of like what to get, then you can do that. Or like, mm-hmm. I'm going to do a video where I take like Fox King and Bill Steen's internal bypasses and I'll pull them apart and show you specifically how they work and kind of like the upsides and downsides. 
yeah. of each of them. Um, I think someone actually asked about all the internal bypasses. It just didn't get written down. Oh, um, I didn't see that. Well, just real quick, I can go through them. Yeah. Just the big three. The Bilstein, they're only like real internal bypasses, the 8112s, which of course I have a giant video on. But it's a full-size piston, and then it has like essentially two other sets of valving and on the bottom end. Now, nah, actually, you know what? You just have to watch the video because I'm not going to be able to explain <laughs> it good. But I like actually go through it on the video if you search up like 8112 explained on YouTube. I think that one is listed. Maybe and linked on our website. It too? is. Okay. Yeah, on the 8112 product page. And mm-hmm. then the Fox's one, it's a, I think I've already said it's a secondary cylinder with reeds in it. And so you can like drill new holes and move the reeds around to change where the bypass zones are. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually super intimidated to try and tune it. The first one I'll do is the two and a half inch ones for this Nissan I'm building right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I'm kind of scared of doing it. Yeah. I'm just like, I'm kind of overwhelmed by the whole thing. I don't know. So I might like for this truck or our truck with the IBPs, just because I have so little experience with them i might have to ask for help from adults <laughs> i might need a real adult and then the king one is just like uh they use a full-size piston and there's like a hollow shaft with a tapered needle that goes into it and they have a bump zone mm-hmm. and then uh like right at the end the tapered needle seats all the way in the hollowed shaft and then it creates uh like a little hydraulic pressure pocket which acts similarly to an air bump so i think like the original idea with the king stuff is that it was for um classes that don't allow you to have an air bump but have like a no restrictions on what kind of shock you can use and so pretty much it's like an air bump inside of the coilover but then everyone i see run it has an external air bump too so i always wonder like what what's happening and (laughs) like how much better it is i really think a lot of it's branding though i think like they like gold anodize the top and it says internal bypass on it. And I think if they didn't do that and it just looked like a normal shock, uh, they wouldn't sell as many. Mm-hmm. I think just the term internal bypass sells them. Yeah. But could be great too, though. I've seen some people have issues with the hollow shaft, like kind of getting jacked up when like if the needle doesn't seat quite perfectly or it gets mm. like side loaded a little bit. But I think the, they like kind of did some updates to it and fixed it. Hmm, was okay. what someone who works for King told me. So who knows? Yeah. And then there's some other uh, internal bypasses and it's all variations of those same things. You pretty much either get a second cylinder inside with ports or there's some like other floating piston things happening inside of there. Similar to the 8112s. So the 8112s is like totally patented and the like bump zone part of the 8112 is only made in like one factory in Germany and they make like the Bugatti Veyron parts too or something. I think, (laughs) you know how they are (laughs) crazy. So yeah, I feel like I'm missing some major things. I didn't even talk about seals or piston rods or oil types or anything. Maybe we'll do a separate podcast. Uh, There's so much involved. Yeah. I was even going to explain the differences between shocks, like emulsion shocks, normal shock, shocks, reservoirs, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't even get into that. So maybe next time I'll do just like a shock 101 for people who are completely new and just want to understand the terminology. Right, right. Just the very basics and Mm -hmm. 
work your way through it. Problem is it really needs accompanied by pictures. Like this would be so much easier with pictures. That's true. And I want to do, I might do like a shock rebuild class at the shop. Oh, that would be cool. Um, and I'll just like, I have a bunch of shocks that, that I need to rebuild. So maybe I can scam other people into doing my work <laughs> for me. And I'm also going to do a welding class at the shop. And then I might do a tube bending class too. That would be cool. Which I think would be really valuable to people if yeah. they can see. Because I kind of have like a bunch of cheats. and The jig we have is yeah. really good. Yeah. yeah. And show how to use the jig and do all the math and everything. And I want to do some other classes. An electrical class. I'll have everyone Ooh, wire up their own relay. Sign me up. Yeah, I know. I'll just <laughs> get a bunch of like uh, five pin relays and have everyone wire up a light mm. just on a table. And yeah. And they can see exactly how it works. So small stuff like that. Hopefully in the coming new year, we can yeah. start doing a lot of the stuff that we've talked about doing for a while. <laughs> Once this Nissan build is done, I'm not committing to any more customer builds. I have a couple like obligations for shock installs and stuff and mm-hmm. tuning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once that's done, I'm done with that. It's yep. fucking hard on me. It's like hard on my back. I know. Like my back is destroyed right now. Right. Um, so it's frustrating. I just need to get it done and out. But also, I'm too far into it to half-ass anything. Maybe we'll uh, address that lift, too, when it's done. Mm, probably not. <laughs> It doesn't leak that bad now. Really? Yeah. I put like three gallons of stop leak in it. That actually worked? I don't know. I also cleaned out the seal a little too. Like there's some rocks and shit in there. All right. You know what the trick is? I think like when you lower the lift, if there's like rocks on the cylinder of the lift, they get sucked into the seal. So when I lower it, I then raise it like an inch or two. Hmm. to like maybe pull the rocks back out because I think the wiper (laughs) doesn't work good. It's sort of a death trap. Yeah. It didn't used to leak when we first moved in, right? Mm, not that bad. Okay. But the seal was just replaced, like literally a year ago. By that same guy who almost killed me when he installed the lift in Elka Home. The post lift, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that dude is the worst. Mm-hmm. But he's the only guy who does it. Yep. <sighs> you just can't get good stuff. Never. There's no like, you can't just like get something that works. It shows up on time. It does what it says. It has all the parts in it. Mm-hmm. You don't need to like mess with it. <laughs> the amount of bolt-on parts I install with a plasma cutter and a welder. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Speaking of, we need to fix our skid plate. Oh, yeah. I managed to crack our skid plate at the welds. Within maybe a week of having it installed, it didn't make it through one trip. So, yeah. But it's also eighth inch. So when I bought it, I was like, there's no way. Yeah. It's not going to hold up. Yeah. Again, for cars and coffee, it'd be fine. (laughs) Not meant to be used. Like a lot of these products. I think there's like, it's like the off-roads version of engineered obsolescence, but it's like, they assume that a certain amount of the customer base doesn't really need the product. So they don't make it as good as they could. And then it's actually cheaper to just warranty out like five to 10% of your product than it is to have like a really top of the line, well-engineered and well-executed thing, which is like the opposite of what 
um, our products are like everything I'm making that will be for like this new product line is completely overkill and it's all meant to be used. Mm -hmm. Like if you break something that I make, I will be impressed. I'll be like, wow, good job. (laughs) That's really good, dude. (laughs) Yeah. You killed it. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that's a problem with a lot of, a lot of things these days. Yes. They're just not meant to be used. They're just pumping, pumping out the numbers. Pump and dump. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what they do speaking of which the stock market took a shit we lost oh, like a thousand dollars fucking christ uh damn someone told me to buy a bunch of dogecoin i bought a bunch of dogecoin and it's just fucking gone down i don't even understand how it works i'm like can i buy stuff with this they're like no I'm like so what is it and they're like well it's digital currency I'm like so i can buy stuff with it and they're like no <laughs> yeah you can I- trade it for money and then buy stuff with money I don't get it. I don't get that. I don't get NFTs. Dude. I don't understand. Fucking NFTs, man. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. What country is switching to El Salvador or something? Digital currency? Yeah. There's the problem is, is that there's like a bunch of market manipulation to like devalue some countries' currencies. And so it is safer if like if everyone could just agree on Bitcoin being like a global currency, I think it would be safer. Right. But, yeah. And then the CIA can't play fuck fuck games with countries as much anymore and Ooh. just, like, devalue their shit. Or, mm-hmm. like, right now we're in a stage of hyperinflation. Right. And so this year all our money is worth 6% less than it was last year. So if you have $100 in your bank account at the beginning of the year, now you have $94 in your bank account over the course of one year. On top of the other 55% in taxes that we pay. Right. Including income tax and state tax and federal tax and small business tax and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It's like over half our money, too. But, yeah, man. I hate the government. (laughs) (laughs) I've been the government. I know it's not good. (laughs) I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. Oh, I want to move to Utah. Yeah, Mm. me too. I love Utah. It's so nice. It's like the best state. People are friendly. So much open space. It's beautiful. There's not a lot of people. Yeah. Less people in Utah than there are in LA. Yeah. LA is a fucking cesspool, though. It's so bad. It just gets worse and worse, worse, man. Constantly. It's so much. I mean, when did I move here from LA? 2015? Yeah. It's gotten so much worse, and it was bad when I was there. I know. It was, like, awful. Mm-hmm. And now it's, like, it's like fucking Gotham. Yeah, that, San Francisco. Oh, yeah. New York. Yeah, dude. They're so bad. I just won't go. No, I know. I have no interest in it. Yeah, it's wild. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's hard to be optimistic about the future. I right know, now. I know. For sure. <laughs> So, oh, well, do you have any words of advice to end this on? I don't think so. Hit it with your purse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if someone else says something that completely contradicts something I said, I mean, I'd be inclined to believe them. (laughs) I don't know everything about this stuff. I'm telling you, like, I'll probably probably be five years from now and I'll still be at the point where I'm messing stuff up consistently and not always making it better 
That's the way she goes. Well, that's how you learn too. So yeah, that's the problem is you really just have to screw it up. Mm-hmm. Like I think especially with shock tuning, and there's so many opinions on the internet too. People are like, oh, the fucking this um, shock that has like a linear compression and uh, digressive rebound is the best, but then you got to drill bleed holes, so it's more like. Uh, linear rebound pretty much, but it's still digressive, so it's better. And it's like, dude, no one can agree on anything. Right. There's no right or wrong. There's no black and white answer or blanket statement when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. It's just like links. Mm -hmm. If you're like at a shop and they start giving you like rules of thumb about link setup, just like run. Or if they can't like... Especially with like the reversed uppers. I've yet to see someone do reversed uppers who can explain the issue with them. Like if someone was like doing reversed uppers on a four link and they were like, yes, after plotting it. And first of all, the suspension calculator isn't designed Mm -hmm. to calculate that. So you're not going to get accurate numbers out of it. But they're like, I understand that this suspension system has this, this and this drawback. And in order to combat those, this is what I'm doing. I'd be like, okay, maybe it'll work. But instead, people are just like, it won't fit with the gas tank, so I make them go backwards. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, dude, this is going to be so much worse. <laughs> like, people, you're spending so much time and money to make it bad. <laughs> I don't get it. So, yeah, man. That's the way she goes. Oh, and... Fox and King have like really great valving setups. Like Fox has this little like plastic like divider thing that has like a printout of all of their valving for like everything they sell and different shims and stuff. And it's super nice. Yeah. I think King does too. A lot easier. Yeah. It's (laughs) like when companies do little stuff like that to make stuff easier on like the installer. It goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool. Whereas other companies have just like atrocious, like valving charts, if you can even find them or they just don't exist or it's confusing or there's like all these differences. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, you guys enjoy the rest of your day and see you in the next couple of months. Yeah, (laughs) I know. We'll see you probably. Mm -hmm. 2022 in february of 2022 <laughs> and today is the december 8th 2021 if you guys are gonna be in Wells is saturday whatever day that is like what the it 10th up. yeah the 11th? Uh, the 11th yeah we'll be out there let us know i'm giving people uh rides in our truck too we're considering the 8112s that's another thing i like is like before you drop a bunch of money on a suspension package like mm-hmm it should be something that the person wants to show off. So Mm -hmm. like there are a bunch of people who are local and they're like, you know, I'm trying to decide between blah, blah, blah. And like, we'll come out to the desert and I'll give you a ride in our truck and you can decide if you think it's worth it. Yeah. And I think that's the best way to figure out where to spend your money. It's It's a big investment. It is a big investment. Like the shocks on the Tundra cost more than most of the eighties Toyota pickups I wheeled when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can spend that much money, you should, should be something that people stand behind and yeah. I mean, we enjoy it. Mm -hmm. A lot of our friends just want to go for a ride in it. So yeah, we'll load up everyone. (laughs) People will hop out of the razor and want to go for a ride in the truck. Yep. So, you know, that says anything. All right. We're almost at the two hour mark and I'm going to go and work for 18 hours now. All right. Cool. (laughs) All right. 
Uh, we'll talk to you guys later.